record stores no longer existed. They were just shuttered and closed up in a dark part of town. There was ruined things. The streets were dark and dirty. It was um, just dystopic. It was like a science fiction, you know, grungy dystopia. And I, I walked by this record store and there was... Um, the Meet the Beatles album was there, and George was there standing, leaning against a car, and he goes, you're too late, John is dead. And I went, what? John is dead? He goes, yes, John is dead. And he was just tragic looking. And I said, oh, oh. And I woke up and I thought, maybe this is just terrible. Maybe I shouldn't be doing it. this. I don't know what this is all about. Now John is dead, right? Welcome to Mysterious World. This is episode number 23, where we return to our conversation with Catherine Ironwood and discuss, amongst other things, manifesting your dreams. fun seekers welcome back to mysterious world if you've come here before and for the newbies welcome i'm Stuart palm and i'll be your host through this interesting deep dive into the worlds of manifesting your dreams exploring hoodoo magic and taoism we cover a lot of territory in this conversation that i have with the amazing Catherine ironwood Catherine, uh, if you didn't uh, listen to part number one, runs a company called the Lucky Mojo Curio Company. The Lucky Mojo Curio Company is um, a supplier of spiritual and folk magic items, products, tools, and uh, she's a practitioner and teacher of such things as well as divination processes and many other things that we discuss in this conversation. But I am so happy that I got this story from her that's going to start the show. We left off in part one where she talked about wanting to meet John Lennon. And you're about to hear the story of that path, of having a dream and following the dream and where it leads her. And there's many um, famous characters such as Ken Kesey, Ringo Starr, George Harrison, who come on that path. And uh, I, I think you're going to enjoy it. I enjoyed it just now, listening to it again to edit the edit episode and, and make it sound better. I don't know why my voice is scratchy. Uh, I think I've just been talking to my kids <clears throat> more. And... Uh, that's uh, going on a lot more kid time right now with, with uh, school being out and so on. But I have to report this, and I think I did last episode too, but we're still doing good here in Hong Kong. 
We've had uh, more than two days now of no new cases of the COVID-19 virus. And we are kind of an island of, of um, safety at the moment. I don't think they'll be able to open up our airports yet because, I mean, at least you, you can come to Hong Kong, but you'll be 14 days in, in quarantine somewhere. Um, so we're not opening up to tourism so much yet. And, uh, so it's going to be, it's going to be a, a re a process of healing within, within our city. This amazing city. And, um, hopefully the rest of the world follows that path. Also, if I'm speaking to you and you're in America, just, you know, wear masks, wash your hands every single time you come inside. Treat the outside world as though it's raw chicken, as my sister said. Smart words. Uh, I also recommend showering more often, cleaning your clothes, don't not not wearing them more than once. Um, yes, some people do that. I know some people just thought what. Um, making sure that you stay in small groups, all those things that you hear, those are all good ideas and wearing masks. I was, I was not an adopter of that in the very beginning, but when you look at the track record of this city, we've only had four deaths. We've had some bursts of people returning to town. The most recent few new cases all came from people who have flown to town. So our local population has either recovered um, or is in recovery. There's a little map that I like looking at that shows the spread of COVID-19 in the city. And at one point, it was a bunch of little red dots. Now they're all green. Very few red dots left. I don't know what's gone on. I'm, I'm originally, if those of you who don't know, I'm originally American. I've lived in Hong Kong for about 10 years. Uh, so I'm a resident of this city now, but, but I'm still an American and, and, and I'm deeply disturbed by what I see in the news. And, and I know you might call that news fake, but, but I don't watch the, um, I don't watch the stuff they try to shoot into your eyeballs and your ear holes. I, I watch and pick and choose, but you can't escape it. You can't escape the bad news and the negative press because it's rampant and it's like everything is an onion article. And, and, I can look at things that are ridiculous that Donald Trump says about injecting this and that. And I can see maybe where in his mind there's a logic behind it, but why, why are there not people <laughs> at least just looking over his script or keeping him on script or something? It just blows my mind. Anyway, I don't want to go down that path. <sighs> so I'm going to let go of it. I'm going to take us to another place, a place where we can give thanks to all the healthcare workers who are tackling this head on. Thanks for all the people who've survived and gotten through the pandemic that's rocking the globe and changing our world right now. And we're going to take a Moment of silence in a moment, and I'll tell you when. And in that moment of silence, moment of silence, I want you to focus on two things, as I will as well. I'm going to focus on 
gratitude for people who are helping others in any form. People whose calling and mission, now or always, is in the aid of others. I give you my love and gratitude. And also, in a moment of remembrance of those loved ones who we have lost, who I have lost, and you have lost, see their faces in your mind, give them your thanks and love. And we'll take a moment of silence. Amen. Blessed be. Jay Guru Deva. If you've heard that before, Jay Guru Deva, if you've heard it consciously, you probably learned transcendental meditation at the end of my course in transcendental meditation. The woman said, Jay Guru Deva. And I went, I've heard that before. And the place that I'd heard it before was on a Beatles album. Jai Guru Deva. Nothing's gonna change my world. Nothing's gonna change my world. It's a beautiful song. If you listen to it, it is the process of learning to meditate. And I highly recommend in this time of stress and anxiety that you all learn the process of meditation. If you want to know more about mine, send me a message. I'll talk about a bunch of stuff where you can connect at the end. You can go to stuartpalm.com or mysteriousworldpodcast.com and learn more about the stuff that I do. But right now... We're going to jump into my conversation with Catherine Ironwood and her story about manifesting John Lennon. No, please. It's probably the most mysterious thing that ever happened to me. Oh, that's the best one. Yeah, so um, this was in the 60s, and I was doing astrology on the street and doing card readings on the street, selling the Berkeley Barb underground newspaper, and um, writing a, co-writing with a bunch of people um, an astrology column for the San Francisco uh, Express, a.k.a. the Good Times Express, which was another underground paper. Hmm. And um, I was just sort of living hand-to-mouth, pretty much. And I had just gotten out of jail um, from growing marijuana. And so I was kind of trying to figure out what to do next. And, but I was making a, you know, a, a pretty good street le- level <laughs> living, just doing astrology and stuff. And 
and I had a place to live. I, I lived in a, um, a shared rental with a bunch of other people. And I, I had a dream that um, I was down on by the headlands, uh, which are some cliffs down in Mendocino, up in Mendocino County, by the town of Mendocino, near where that little, uh, that little Chinese temple I mentioned was. And um, I dreamt that I went down by the cliffs and there was a cave in the cliff and um, I went in there. Now I had been in Sicily and there were these caves and, you know, grottos. So it was like as if that was in Sicily, you know, um, geological formation wise, it was not like Mendocino. And so I went into this cave and, um, and Paul McCartney was there. And this was during the height of the interest in the Beatles. Um, This was um, around the time uh, Sgt. Pippers had come out, but the White Album had not come out. And um, there was Paul McCartney, and I was not a Beatles fan. I was a little too old to have been a screaming Beatles fan girl, but I liked them because they did some Chuck Berry songs, and I liked Chuck Berry a lot. And um, I also didn't like them because they did Chuck Berry songs and, you know, fuck, why don't you write your own songs, guys? You know, which they eventually did. But I was never like, oh, my God, you know, wow, the Beatles. So, but there was Paul McCartney. And I said, um, I said, hi. And he said, "Um, you're looking for John Lennon, aren't you? And I said, I am. (laughs) And he said, yes. And I woke up. Then I went to... (laughs) Two nights later, I dreamt I was at a gas. I was at a gas station, and at the gas station was a girl I'd gone to school with. Her name was Cindy Sargent, and she handed me a map, and it was a blank map, and it had rule lines around the outside edge, and you know N S E W, you know, showing that it was a map, but it was completely blank. And she goes, "Here's your map, so you can find John Lennon." And I went, "Okay, now I've had two dreams, right?" So I thought, I don't know anything about John Lennon other than he's one of the Beatles and I think he's one of the songwriters along with Paul McCartney. And there's these other two guys who were in it and um, who I really couldn't tell apart. So I went up on Telegraph Avenue to a store that was a newsstand that sold out-of-town newspapers. And they sold, they had so many exchange students, foreign exchange students at Cal that they had papers from, you know, South Africa and from... India and they had the Manchester Guardian from England and they had all these papers and they also had magazines and um, they had uh, a, um, a little stack of a, a fanzine from England called the Beatles book and it was like a little digest size thing so I thought I'm just going to sit here and read them and they knew me they, I, they just let me sit on the floor and read them for two hours because I didn't have the money to buy them and I was going I began to read about this stuff and I and I thought okay there must be some reason that I'm looking for John Lennon I don't know what it is and I thought, well, if I'll start by finding his birth date, then I can do his chart. Then I'll see, maybe I just have something in common with his chart. Maybe it's being stimulated by a transit. Good to go, you know. But I didn't quite see that. And um, because the birth time that was given to him, it just didn't make a chart that had any relationship to me. And um, so I I became more and more interested in this, um, why I was had dreamed these dreams. And then suddenly I remembered that the map with the rule lines around it was from a book by Lewis Carroll called The Hunting of the Snark, and it was the frontispiece. And I and I ran down to Berkeley Public Library, and I grabbed the book, and I looked at it, and I said, damn, it's from this book. And I had remembered I had been reading these magazines, and it said in one of the magazines that John Lennon was a fan of Alice in Wonderland and Lewis Carroll. And I went, okay, now I have a firm connection. I know these are not random dreams. So um, a couple of nights later, I had another dream. And in this other dream, I was at a big resort 
but old fashioned, like a hot springs resort with balconies with, you know, people in lawn and there was big hot pools and, you know, swimming pool size hot pools. And there was um, contests to be held every day. And um, if you won the contest, you could quote, meet the Beatles, which was the name of one of their albums. And I said, oh, okay. And um, so uh, what you had to do was match some patterns together, like fabric patterns. And so it was very easy for me to match them. I'm a seamstress. And I'm like, oh, there you go, matches. And they said, you get to meet George. And I'm like, no, no, I'm supposed to meet John. And I knew this. And I'm supposed to meet John, not George. <laughs> they took me upstairs, to up the balcony, and there was George Harrison. And I said, actually, I'm looking for John. And he said, um, he's not here right now. And I said, oh. He goes, well, he'll, he'll be in sometime, but uh, would you like to talk to me? And I knew enough in that dream, it was lucid enough to say, no, thank you. It's been very nice meeting you. So I became determined at this point to make this dream come true. So I began making little index cards, like a business card, and I'd write on them, I will do your horoscope, but, you know, and I knocked some bucks off, made it cheaper. Um, I need money to go to England to meet John Lennon as per my dream. And I thumbtacked these up in laundromats and different bookstores all around Berkeley. And a guy approached me and he said, I don't believe in astrology, but I'm going to give you $50. Um, and I said, why? And he, he said, because I had a dream that I sailed um, across China in a hot air balloon scattering out leaflets of peace. But I know I can never do it. So here's $50. You go live your dream. And he was an older guy, too. It was, it was a grown-up. I was, you know, in my teen, teens. And so I thought, okay, now people believe in me. And people began to have me do their charts. And they would donate money so that I could have enough money to go to England and meet John Lennon. Then I had a dream, while still waiting for this, that um, I was um, in... George had become kind of friendly to me in my dreams now. And so George says, would you like to hear our new album? And I'm like, oh, your new album? Okay. And he brings out this album that just has a white cover. There's no nothing wow. on it. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And he puts it on this record player. And it was like a little portable record player. And he puts it on and he goes, here. And I said, wow, this is really interesting. And he goes, I'm glad you like it. And I said, well, I'm still looking for John Lennon. And he goes, yeah, 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 you, you'll, you'll, get, you'll meet him. So I'm still working on earning up money. I then had another dream. And in the next dream was a dystopic future in which record stores no longer existed. They were just shuttered and closed up in the dark part of town. There was ruined things. The streets were dark and dirty. It was um, just dystopic. It was like a science fiction, you know, grungy dystopia. And I, I walked by this record store and there was um, the Meet the Beatles album was there. And George was there standing, leaning against a car. And he goes, you're too late. John is dead. And I went, what? John is dead? He goes, yes, John is dead. And he was just tragic looking. And I said, oh, oh. And I woke up and I thought, maybe this is just terrible. Maybe I shouldn't be doing it. This I don't know what this is all about. Now John is dead, right? Well, then I had another dream in which I met Paul again. And Paul had a, a parrot, a Paul parrot. It was like a little pun, right? He had a parrot on one of those stakes with a little crossbar, you know, like where you keep your parrot on. And, um, and um, I said, um, 
I'm still looking for John. He goes, you better hurry. And I said, oh, okay. So meanwhile, people were giving me all these money. So I decided to, I had enough money just to take a very cheap flight to Glasgow. I had no more money after that for um, a train to London. Um, I had nothing. I really couldn't. I was just going to, you know, live off my wits. I got there. I got a one-month visa. I got into Glasgow. Wow. But on the plane going over, there was a young British boy. Well, I shouldn't call him a boy. He was a little older than me. He was probably 19, 20, 21. And he had gone to Montana. His dream had been to ride a horse and wear cowboy boots in Montana. And we were laughing. I said, well, I'm going to England to meet John Lennon. He said, well, that's just as fun, I guess. He goes, I had a wonderful <laughs> summer. He goes, I had a wonderful summer in Montana, and I learned how to rope cattle. And I said, that's great. So we got off the plane, and we hadn't even really even flirted. It was not a boyfriend-girlfriend thing. He was just a nice young man, and we were having a great talk. His dad was there to meet him, and he goes, this is my friend. She's come from California. She needs to go to London. Can we fix it up for her dad? And they were going, they went to, um, they were in Manchester, someplace partway down England. So I drove, it turned out they were very wealthy, and it was like they had a limousine with a chauffeur and he was telling his dad all about how wonderful it was in Montana. And then we get there and they are going to go to their home. And he says, just a moment, let me get you a ride. And he goes over to this lorry driver who's at the gas station. And he says, I'm going to give you, you know, 20 pounds or something. He goes, take this girl to London and make sure she's safe. So he paid for this truck driver to drive me to London. Wow. So I, get to London and the truck driver says, where do you want to go? And I said, I don't know, where do the hippies go? He goes, Notting Hill Gate. I said, take me to Notting Hill Gate. So he lets me hop on the corner and just like in Chicago, there's a handsome young man, uh, sort of a Scottish looking young man on the corner. And I said, um, do you know a place where anybody could crash? He goes, come with me. I, I got a place you can crash. And, um, and he, it was him and his brother, a guy named Peter and his brother, David, and they were Scottish, and they were involved in doing house cleaning for rock and roll celebrities. Um, oh, my gosh. In, including, <laughs> like, Mick Jagger. And um, they also were into um, ley lines and the view over Atlantis and all of this sacred geometry stuff, which was just getting off the ground with John Michelle at the time, which nice. I was into, too. Yeah. And they were part of, a, of an underground newspaper. And so I just moved in to their house, right? And I began to meet people. There was a there was a woman I stayed with her. She was the wife of Arthur Brown of the band Crazy World of Arthur Brown. And I got to meet Jimi Hendrix and, you know, Donovan and all this stuff was going on, right? But I kept my focus. I said, I'm here to meet John Lennon. And this wasn't going to work because none, you know, whatever. It just wasn't, I mean, it was kind of like, would you like to be a groupie? Would you like to be with this? Would you like some more drugs? You know, and I was like, no, no, I'm here to meet John Lennon. Don't lose focus. And there was a... Um, a young man from Philadelphia across the street was an American draft dodger named Steve. And um, he and I kind of hit up a friendship, too. And he was part of a band called the Third Ear Band. And so eventually, um, uh, at this time, John Lennon was with Yoko Ono. And, um, and so I decided I was just going to go down to the Apple, you know, uh, building where they Video. had their, you know, their... Um, yeah business building. And I just, I walked in and there were people, I, I got to explain this. It was like, an, a, you got in there and there was one secretary and there was this just jammed line of people trying to arrange interviews with the Beatles. And it was like this 
huge mob. And the person right ahead of me was from Der Stern, you know, the German paper. And somehow this secretary looked at me and she beckoned me like, I don't know why. She just said, come here. I got I jumped the line and she said, um, what can I do for you? And I said, I'm here to meet John Lennon. She goes, go through that door. And I went back and through this door. A maid came out with a tea service with platinum and gold rims. It was Ainsley, white Ainsley teacups. And it was, and what kind of tea would you like? And da, da, da. And then um, uh, different people from the Beatles team came by and had tea with me. And, stuff. and I said, well, is John Lennon here? And they said, no, but Paul McCartney is. Would you like to see him? And I, I thought about this, and I thought, I have to say no. Well, I'm sure I'd like to meet Paul McCartney. By that time, I was kind of like, really like, what am I doing this for? You know? <laughs> I, but I knew that if I said, yes, I'd like to meet Paul McCartney, I would just get a warning, no, 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 you mustn't. You know? <laughs> so um, so um, at, the, at that point, they, they took me upstairs, and they gave me a copy of the White Album, which had just come out. Oh, my gosh. And, um, and they gave me a copy of Two Virgins by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And they said, here. And um, and they said, do you have enough money and, and, and all, you know, whatever? And I said, I'm fine. They said, do you have, do you, you know, do you have a place to stay? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And um, and then this guy, whose name was Mal Evans, said, um, you know, you looked like you're dressed a little thin for the weather here. It was going to be um, late fall. And I said, um, I said, yeah, I'm from California. And he said, let me take you out and buy you some clothes. So he took me to the Liberty store and bought me a whole lot of clothes and uh, scarves and just beautiful things. And I thought, oh, now he's going to want to have me to make me have sex with him, although I knew he was married because I knew all about these people because I had read these magazines about them. And um, and I, I, But he didn't. He was a Gemini. He didn't ask me to have sex with him. He was just very nice. He drove me home in this freaking limousine Um back to the little hippie place where I lived in Notting Hill. And um, and he said, well, come by any time. And all my hippie friends were like, what did you do to get that right? Well, yeah, did you ever go down on him? You know, And I'm saying, no, no, look at all the clothes he gave me. It was, it was like so nice. And everyone was like, well, that was weird. Are you, <laughs> you, you happy now? And I said, no, I still haven't met John Lennon. So I went back. I waited a week and I went back again. And um, the secretary, that time she saw me, she just says, come on, go back, there's the door, just go back. And again, I was given tea. And that time they said, um, oh, uh, Ken Kesey and the Hell's Angels are up on the roof, why don't you go up there? And I was like, okay, because I knew Ken Kesey. This is like so weird, you know, from California, right? And I'm like, okay, now I'm with Ken Kesey and the Hell's Angels. What the fuck, you know? So I get up there and we're all smoking pot together. And somebody comes up and says, George is here. I, I heard you wanted to meet the Beatles. Um, George is here. Would you like to meet George? And I thought, this is just like my dream coming true. And I said, no, I, I like George a lot and I like what he stands for. And I like his politics, but I'm not here to meet George. I'm here to meet John. And um, and they said, John doesn't come here anymore because Yoko doesn't get along with anybody. And I said, well, sorry about that. I, I just, I'm, I'm here to meet John. So I went back home and I made a, a collage box, a toy box, a, a hippie mental uh, exercise box. It was filled with all things and little puzzles. And I, I, I used to make these and sell them as art objects, right? So it was, a, it was like a, a box, like a large 
candy box that would hold maybe three pounds of candy. And I, it was white and I filled it with all these different little things and stones and little whatever. And it was really cool. And I spent a long time making it. It was really, really great. And, and I thought I'm going to go down thir- three times because in the book, The Hunting of the Snark, it says, what I tell you three times is true. And if you don't, you don't do it a fourth time. You just do it three times. So I went down um, and I delivered the box. And I said, this is for John and Yoko. And and they said, oh, I'm so sorry. They're not here today. And I said, fine. And I went back home. I got home. Steve comes over and he goes, we're invited to uh, perform at the alchemical wedding and I said, yeah, what's that? And he goes, it's in the Albert Hall. It's going to be this big thing put on by the Arts Lab, which is what Yoko had been a part of the Arts Lab. And uh, John and Yoko were going to be there doing a, a bee in a bag in a bag. And I said, wow, okay. He goes, here's the kicker. He goes, I have to have a female with me because everyone is the alchemical wedding. Everybody has to bring a mate. And he goes, I don't have a girlfriend. He goes, would you pretend you're my girlfriend? I said, sure. <laughs> so I got in. And I, what I didn't know was that they were going to seat all of the musicians on stage in like a horseshoe kind of pattern. And they had to be seated next to their mate. And all of these, by the way, were totally heteronormative. It was male, female, boy, girl, boy, girl. And so I was next to Steve. But when the band would play, all the bands were male, right? So they got up and the women would just sit there. It was kind of corny now when you look back on it. Everyone was playing, you know, taking their turns. And suddenly Ken Kesey and the Hells Angels, who were down in the seats, down in the, on the flat part there, uh, began acting out. And this woman took off all her clothes. And I don't know whether she was on drugs or she was just uh, being a contrarian, but they all began stripping off their clothes. And so the house uh, director of the Albert Hall just shut the lights. They cut the power. And there was screaming. The, the bobbies came in. People were being arrested. I just sat in my chair. I just didn't know what to do, you know. Then the guy who was the master of ceremonies um, came over to the third ear band. He goes, you guys are the only acoustic band. Will you go out and play while we're trying to get this under control? So they went out and played. And I'm just sitting there in my chair. And... Um, they, the third ear band was finished playing. They came back and Steve says to me, weren't you here to see John Lennon? I said, yeah. And he goes, you're sitting right next to him. <laughs> and nearsightedness, yeah. I looked over and I was like, oh my God, I'm sitting right next to John Yoko. I was sitting right next to them. So I stood up and I had this cape. It was a beautiful cape made of an olive drab World War II army blanket in which in wool I had done incredible cruel embroidery in wool of all the signs of the zodiac with the animals and people in it and the, and also the symbols for the signs. It was like the, the cape made like a three-quarter, well, it made a full circle, but when you wore it, it, was, it hung like three-quarters. It was just really great. And it had a big brooch made of brass and a Celtic pattern that a friend of mine had made for me. And it was like pretty dramatic. And it was lined with um, um, silk and... Um, silk taffeta, two-tone silk. So I stood up because I knew that if, I, if I'm wearing that thing and anyone looks at my back, they know I'm somebody special. I was photographed in a lot of the time. So I stood up because they still hadn't put the lights on. Everyone was just milling around on the stage at that point. And so I went and I stood up and I stood in front of John and Yoko and I thought, what am I going to do? You know, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? And, um, and then John Lennon said... Um, are you the woman who made that box? Wow. And I, and I, I said, yes. And he, because apparently they described me because I was wearing that cape, you see. And he said, we liked it a lot. And he said, um, he said, 
um, it you know it's it's wonderful to get to know you and it's nice that you've come this way and I said you know I've always had a question about you um, I've seen I've seen um, a birth time for your chart that doesn't make a lot of sense to me and he goes oh that chart that was made out of the, the birth date in the Beatles book he goes when they told me what they asked me what my birth time was I didn't even know what astrology was and I just gave them any old time he goes that wasn't my birth time and I didn't even make it up for a point he goes here's my real birth time and then he just takes out a pen and he starts drawing his chart and then he draws Yoko's chart on top of his chart and I'm going now this all makes sense you know because we had a lot of stuff in common and um and, and, you know, I, we were going on about, you know, he's a Libra and a Aquarius and, da, 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 and Gemini was all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this makes so much sense because I have Aquarius moon. And, and he was showing how Yoko and he were perfectly matched. So we sat around and talked about astrology for about 45 minutes. And I thought, well, that was interesting. And then <laughs> um, Yoko goes, I think we better go on stage now. So they went on stage and they got into a bag, which was made of two sheets sewn together like a pillowcase. And the footlights had come back on. And from the footlights, you could see that they were actually took their clothes off and were fucking in this bag. But from the front, and I got this from my friends later who were down in front and didn't have stage tickets. All they saw was this white bag and it was boring. And she was supposed to be showing this movie called Smile, which was this ultra slow motion of John Lennon smiling. And people got very angry. People were very hostile by that point. And they began throwing bottles at them. And so um, Steve and the third ear band went out and tried to calm them down. Also a woman who was a crazy, she was a, oh, you know, a bipolar schizophrenic lady. Um, she had a baby. And um, she used to say that she was the model for the song Lady Madonna. I don't think she was. But she went out there and her ch she had the less control of her child. So Steve was holding her child and playing the flute. And like, this was, it was fucking chaotic. Anyway, they got out of it safely. But by that time, a group of picketers from Oxfam, do you know what Oxfam is? Yeah. Um, it's a charity um, the Oxford, Oxford Famine Fund or whatever. So they were from Oxfam and these people had these signs and they were screaming um, at John, you know, you, you're keeping money for yourself. You should give money to the poor. You should feed the poor. And and um, he was terrified. They were began to charge the stage. And Yoko grabbed my hand and she said, come with us. And um, we went down this hall we, I mean, we went backstage and they knew how to get out. I didn't. Then we, I went running with them and um, we got out to the back. There was a courtyard and there was their car, which was this Rolls Royce. And um, she said, stop them from following us. And I stood and these people were literally charging after them, screaming. And um, she took my hand. She says, goodbye. Thank you. And they got in the, in the limousine and drove away. Hmm. And I thought... That's what I was here for. I was here to protect John and Yoko from this, these folks who really meant some sort of harm to them. And I thought about it and I went home. I mean, I, you know, I was like, that was it. I did my job. I went home. And I always thought, I said, I know John's going to be killed because someday there won't be someone there to protect him. And I was not surprised when he was killed years later. And... Um, also, I was not surprised when my daughter was born that her son was exactly conjunct his son. And, um, uh, you know, you don't tell a child 
what to do or what to like. But there was this album and it had those four little pictures that came in it, you know, little photos by Richard Avedon of the Beatles. And she said, I want John Lennon over my bed. And she was a child, a little child. She didn't know he was a Libra, that they had the same birth uh, solar degree or anything. And she put John Lennon's picture over her bed when she was just very little. And then he was killed. She was still very young. And she just completely fell apart. And she was like, I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to live anymore. And um, it took me a long time to get her, you know, I just buried whatever feelings I had. I had, I had to stay up with her all night. She was screaming because John Lennon was dead. And I thought, well, I guess what I have in common with John Lennon is my daughter. <laughs> you know, it was sort of strange. And and so that was the most mysterious thing that ever happened to me in my life. And I still have the drawings of the chart that he made for me. And um, and when he was killed, I was a reporter for the Comic Spires Guide, and I had to make, um, you know, do the news, what Marvel was doing, what DC was doing. And I, I did my own typesetting, and it was in this big, um, big uh, newspaper, like Variety, but for comics. And um, the head of Marvel Comics was this man named Jim Shooter, not everybody's favorite. He was a pretty tough guy to get along with. I, uh, he, he had, socially, he was not well-liked. And um, I had to call him up and say to him, you know, what's the news from Marvel? Because he had made it so that no writer or artist at Marvel could be interviewed directly by me. They all had to be, he had to be the, he was a kind of control freak and he, he, he wanted everything to go through him. And he said, so how are you doing today? And I said, I don't, I don't feel too good. You know, John Lennon got killed. And I said, and, and he goes, well, you know, celebrities. I said, you know, but the weird thing is I met him and, and I, it was so strange. And he goes, well, what happened? And I said, well, it's such a long story. He goes, why don't you do that instead of the Marvel News? I said, really? So I wrote it all out in the buyer's guide. And I, and I put in the picture of the little drawing of, of his chart that John had done. And I thought, people will think I'm crazy for having written this up. And, um, but I, I felt I had to just, to, you know, it was so strange. And all I could think was that I had been asked to, uh, to do this sort of on a, I guess, a cosmic level. Yep. There you go. There's your strange story. That's fabulous. I love yeah. that you trusted it and you followed it and you made it happen. Well, you don't be a magician without trusting magic. You know, of course you have not. to make that's a choice you have to make at some point. You know, unless you're unless you're just muse, using uh, religion or magic as a kind of a a prop for your personality, if you really trust in it, you're going to go with it. Um, well, so many times I hear, oh, I cannot get it to work, or, oh, I, you know, I don't know, it seemed like something magical happened, but then people just second-guess things so quickly um, that that your story for me stands as, as a, a reminder that when you receive these messages or you receive this guidance to follow through, uh, mm -hmm. because there's a reason for it. And, you, you know, if you keep at it, you will, you will find, you will meet John Lennon <laughs> right. and figure out and why course, it is and, you needed and, to meet John Lennon. Yeah, and again, I have to explain, I always have to explain at the end, I was not a fan of the Beatles. This was right. like, it was like a mission. Here's your mission. You've got, and, and don't give up, don't go with George, don't meet George, don't, don't, don't meet. Then after I came home, 
But before John Lennon died, I had one final dream, and it was very strange. We were in a um, a place that no longer exists. It was the old hotel at Harbin Hot Springs, another like a uh, one of these hot spring resorts. But this is a real one that I knew very well. And we were at Harbin Hot Springs on the second floor in the balcony, and um, and we went into the hall, and um, it burned down in one of those big wildfires in California recently. In this dream, it was the dream after John had died, and the army of John and the army of Paul were going to have a meeting and a truce, but it was very difficult because only Paul was still alive. And I belonged, I was with the troops of the army of John, and... Um, there was this kind of, Paul was very gracious and said, well, if you don't want to join the army of Paul, that's okay. Um, you can stay in the army of John. It's too bad John is gone. It was a very, it was another really sad thing about John's death that predicted his death. And, um, but Paul was very nice in the dream and he always was nice in my dreams. And although I never met him in real life, but he always was just a, a delightful person in my dreams. And I, I said, well, I went over to him and I talked to him in the dream and I said, well, I don't want to join the army of Paul exactly, but um, I think I'm just going to be a, a freelancer from now on and that's it. And he said, that's good. You just be a freelancer. So that's what I, my decision was in the dream after I'd met John and I still knew he was going to die and I knew that I would just be a freelancer after that. Nice. Yeah. Strange. Very strange. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, the world is full of a lot of them, and I could tell you a lot of other stories, but that is the strangest I've ever had. And also, I I have to say, when I tell such a story, I want to make it very clear. I'm not trying to say that I'm special or boasting of anything. Um, I'm only one of a million people who met John Lennon. It's not like I was special, but on that night I was needed. That's all. And I someone wonder... What was the reason the woman, from her perspective, from uh, Apple Studios, let you in? Was it, was it obviously that you were there for a different reason than everybody else? I would have thought they would have noticed that, yeah. I was not an adult in their... I was, you know, I was not an adult. <laughs> I was right. some sort of wandering hippie. I, I, I have wondered about that, too, and I think... They thought I was with Ken Kesey because they had a California accent. I didn't know Ken Kesey and the Hells Angels were there and were being guested oh, yeah, that makes and sense. dined. And I think she thought I was one of them. And then later, the second time, she, they took me up to the roof to smoke pot with Ken Kesey, which was kind of weird. It's like, what am I doing here smoking pot <laughs> with Ken Kesey when the last time I smoked pot with Ken Kesey was in Canyon, California? I mean, it's like, what the right. fuck? You know, it was like, huh. It was like, okay, I came all the way to smoke pot with Ken Kesey one more time. Cool. But that, but you know, so that was, but I think that's what the thought had been. And, and, um, and Mal Evans, who's dead now, um, uh, was so nice to me. I don't know why. I, I don't, I really, I don't think he was grooming me to have sex with me or anything like that. He was just some idea that he, that I looked cold, like my clothes were too thin. I had cotton clothes on and. I had nothing, no... Yeah, you didn't, you didn't know. Yeah. And so he gave me all these beautiful, uh, you know, he basically just, he, he acted like a, like, a, like a grandfather and uncle. He wasn't that much older than me, but he was like, here, do you like that dress? Do you like these boots? You know, you, you want this shawl? 
you know, and I was, I bought a bunch of shit. And, and then I, he drove me home in his fucking limousine. So crazy. <laughs> As a person who travels a lot compared to most Americans, um, I love how often I'll be somewhere in the world and meet someone either that I know or who's connected to someone I know. Yes. Where, where there's some sort of message that needs to be relayed or some sort of thing. And you're just like, oh. And, and there's a moment where you're always like, wow, that's crazy. And then there's a moment where you're like, well, it's happened before. And, and I'm sure there's a reason for that. And you just accept it. Or at least that's how I, I, I do that. I go, okay, yeah, this is what's supposed to be happening. Yeah, there's, uh, I, well, I took a lot of drugs when I was young and that kind of puts you <laughs> outside the normal world. Yes, it um, does. But I wasn't taking drugs during that time period much at all. I'd gotten out of uh, uh, jail and I was on, um, uh, you know, uh, probation and all this. And it was, you know, I had to report into my parole officer and all this shit. You know, it was like a whole, and it wasn't probation, it was parole, I should say. And so I, I, I wasn't going to do drugs at that time. Uh, well, except when I was in England, I could smoke dope with Ken Kesey, you know what I mean? But I couldn't, right. like, I didn't want to be, uh, get arrested again. So I, I kind of cooled that part of my life. And it never kind of appealed to me afterwards. I kind of just calmed down. But that didn't stop weird things from happening. But but in those drug experiences, I really became aware of the fact that there were, um, I guess I could say I kind of bought into Kurt Vonnegut's idea that there were these circles of people who had, uh, what he called them carasses, uh, who had some kind of a, a connection to one another that were doing things together that were irrelevant to the rest of the world, but they had a connection to one another. And you'd meet these people, like that boy who had gone to Montana uh, and it was wearing his cowboy boots so proudly, you know, that he would get me, you know, a ride and then his father would pay for me for it. All of that sort of thing. God knows, what would I have done in Glasgow? How would I have ever gotten to London? I mean, I was completely just clueless, just wandering child, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I love I love those people. <laughs> um, but yeah, those people are always there. And I have to say, I am that person for others sometimes. Yeah, yeah me too. And yeah. um, having put myself out into the world as a writer and a teacher, I find that I have become that focal point for others. And that's kind of cool that I can, you know, that I can, you know, help some flower bloom along the way or whatever, you know. Um I don't aspire to be a great person, but um, I aspire to be a willing worker. Right. Well, you do aspire to be a great person. It just doesn't mean the same thing as what most people mm -hmm. think of as great person. Yeah. I mean, that's the point of all of this stuff is to be become the best version of whatever it is you're supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's my goal. Um to be kind and um, friendly, and um, that's it. Yeah, awesome. I thank you. Those are lovely <laughs> stories. I, I this is great stuff. Uh, I, I'm I'm entranced right now. So I'm like, ah, I'm still <laughs> imagining um, uh, your cape and John and Yoko's performance, and just the whole mystique of the whole thing is fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, you can look it up. It's in the internet. It really happened. My story is not on the internet, but, the, but that event was, was recorded by other people and noted. Yeah. I, have you told that story recorded before? Is it? No, I've never recorded it before. Like I said, I did write it up for my That's column. Lovely. I had a column called Fit to Print in the Buyer's Guide. And 
It's uh, it's out there in print somewhere. Well, thank you for that lovely gift. Well, you're welcome. I'm glad, I'm glad that we have that in, in the recording now. Um, what are you working on right now? Well, um, as you may or may not know, I have a publishing company, Lucky Mojo Publishing. I do. Lucky, Lucky Mojo Book Company. And um, I'm working on two books. They've been halted kind of because of the uh, coronavirus. There's been some problems with the printer. Um, you know, they've had to send everybody home. And so these books are not yet at press. I've been telling people they were going to be at press in February. And guess what happened? They, they're not in press. Um, I had hoped to have them out by May. I don't think I will now. But um, one of them is called Bottle Up and Go. And it's on container spells in the hoodoo uh, tradition primarily. Although there's a few little venturings out into a few other cultural byways. But um, it's on um, bottle spells, jar spells, bags, boxes, freezers, potted plants, hmm. uh, hole in the ground, hole in the tree, packet, paper, leather, lead, every kind of, you know, um, loaded candles, yeah, container spells. And, um, and I co-wrote that with Lara Rivera, who's my friend from AIR, the Association of Independent Readers and Root Workers. And uh, she wanted to do a book with me, so we worked on it together. And then the other book I've been working on is a an augmented reprint of The Guiding Light to Power and Success by Mikhail Strabo, which is one of these old hoodoo drugstore pamphlets that was so influential back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, and eventually went out of print. And um, it was originally published as A Candle to Light Your Way by Mikhail Strabo. It was 32 pages. It was such a hit that the very next year he expanded it to the book called The Guiding Light to Power and Success. So um, that became a um, 64... I think I saw a post about this book. 64-page yeah. book, yeah. 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 Cool. So I decided to make it a 96-page book um, by adding things that he alluded to. Uh, you know, like I, he talks about candles for the planets and candles for the signs of the zodiac. But he does, he goes into a little detail, but not much. But I thought, well, why not put in the Orphic hymns? Because he had psalms for some of the other candles. And I thought, well, if he's got psalms, I'll put in the Orphic hymns. And so it easily is it's now a 96-page book. It has some Solomonic seals. He alluded to how to use the seals, but he assumed you would have the 6th and 7th books of Moses in your collection. And so I thought, well, let me just import those pictures in. So it's now a 96-page book. So... It's the expanded, revised, rectified version of that. I'm working on a book on um, dowsing. I'm working on a book about astrology for root workers. I'm working on a couple of other books. I just, you know, I add to them as I go along. I work very hard on the AIR website. Today I was part of the tech team. Every week we get together and we write a new page. And today we did a new page on... Um, well, we didn't do a new page. I expanded the page on tea leaf reading, wrote some more, added some pictures. I have a whole website on tea leaf reading called The Mystic Tea Room. I did and, not know uh, that. Yeah, themystictearoom.com. And um, it's about the whole history and art of tea leaf reading and my collection of teacups. I want to make teacups so I can put the, the symbols in the teacup. I want to make, I want to make a bunch of those. Uh, and that's what that's what I, I went to this um, a, a, a neighbor whose son is a friend of my son. Her, 
<laughs> her sister runs a ceramic place where you can go and and uh, you know the bring bring a group of people and sit down and paint pottery and they have the pre pre-made uh it's stuff. biscuitware yeah yeah and so mm -hmm. i was like "Ooh, i'm gonna do a teapot and i took the teapot down and i you know I'd, I'd done some ceramic glazing when i was a kid um because i grew up and my mom's a artist and my dad's in the arts to, to a degree and so you know this is my world i'm like oh great so we're there my son and, and it was funny because everybody wanted to go and i'm like no no i'm gonna finish this teapot before we go <laughs> <laughs> But I, I do, I kept, kept meaning to go back. I need to go back and do a bunch of uh, tea cups because I love those and I don't have one. So. Oh, well, I have, a, I have a collection of about 200 of them. I'm sure you do. And I saw, and I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've almost bought one from Lucky Mojo's, what, what you guys sell. But yeah. um, that would be something I could easily start collecting <laughs> myself. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I know that you're interested in folk magic of all kind. I know you teach and I know you... You have a practice as a reader and as a hypnotherapist, but have you have you done any work collecting the folk magic of Hong Kong? Oh yeah, yeah I have, and and most of that is is either uh, feng shui pe people who are practice feng shui, or uh, from people who are in in Taoism more deeply. Mm -hmm. They, everybody has their, you know, you, you do the fortune telling sticks, you can bring them your, your number and they'll give you the the reading on the fortune telling sticks. So everybody does that. Oh, can I interrupt? I want to yeah. interrupt you. What is the local name for those sticks? Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this. Uh, I know I am enjoying re-listening to it now. Uh, but at this point, I, I, I respond to uh, Catherine just to to say that I don't really know. Uh, I think at some point somebody told me and then I'd forgotten, uh, but I have since looked it up. So I have that information for you uh, in Hong Kong. And I uh, apologize to those who speak Cantonese. Well, um, the fortune telling sticks in Cantonese would be Kao Chim or Kao Chim. Uh, and in, in um, Mandarin, it'd be Chim Tong. Uh, or something close to that, because though I've lived here 10 years, my pronunciation can be de uh, dreadly, dreadly, dreadful, I am told. Um, but it's an interesting thing. I, I have two sets here, and um, <clears throat> one of them has 64 sticks, which is the same number you would have in the I Ching. And then the other one has 108, which I know is an important Buddhist number. Um, but I've also seen 96 uh, stick sets and 64, six, uh, just 60 sets. Uh, so there's a lot of variation in these things. Um, but they're cool and uh, and they're fun. And if you look at it in, in um, particular in Taoist tradition... At least as far as I understand it, you would, um, there's sort of a ritual where you circle the, the sticks, the, the bamboo bucket of sticks over incense that you've placed in the altar. And so you're connecting and, and allowing the altar to bless the sticks. So you're receiving the power of your altar. And if it's a Taoist altar, that's going to have the three uh, Taoist wise men sort of God characters on the top. And uh, I can't remember their names right now. I'm Terrible remembering names appear, apparently. Um, and then uh, you you are asking for the connection between your own intuition, the sticks, and the altar or the, the divine to give you the answer to your question. And then you shake the sticks like this. I'm going to do it right now. 
one of them falls out. Uh, one of them falls out, and, and the one that I got there was 25. I'm glad it's not 27, because 27 is a notoriously bad number. And I was asking uh, how this uh, uh, podcast uh, would go. And I'm on the website pswu.com slash one tie sin. And um, it gives you a hundred uh, possibilities to pick from to read what the fortunes are for this. It's a pretty good one. It's a pretty good uh, translation. It doesn't give too much um, interpretation on it. And that's what the, the fortune tellers are for. But what I like is it gives you a poem. The first emperor of Ming dynasty assumed his throne. The central mountain is surrounded by a range of hills, just like groups of officials attending a royal court, lining solemnly and orderly on the sides. What a pleasure to stand among this land. And then it says on the side, fortune, top, level, good luck. So uh, we can extrapolate and look at this in many different ways. We could say that that um, this will be... Um, a pleasure for people to listen to and uh, bring them comfort. We we can we can look at this as, as a positive attribution. Um, now, looking on different lists of, of uh, meanings for these um, in different um, sets, it seems that uh, one hundred sticks is the right number. Um, so here's another interpretation of twenty five. The days of hardship and danger are gone. Plans revived will work and work well and prosper. A broad mind works out effective schemes. Talent seen by your patrons will earn its reward. So that's great. And, and that's, uh, that's kind of what I need to hear right now, being the state of things uh, as the world is going through the COVID-19 situation. Uh, Hong Kong is doing rather well in comparison to the rest of the world. We have been about a week of new, uh, no new cases. Kao um, Chim or uh, Chong uh, Chim Tong means request a sign. So request a message uh, from divinity in some way. And that that's how the, um, I think I describe it in just a minute. That's how the moon blocks work as well. And when I use them, I always set up an altar and make it clear that I'm not you're not asking me the answer of this question. It's not coming from me. This is coming from your connection to uh, your your intuition, your intention, um, the oracle device itself, and the divinity you're focused on, which is important when thinking about different oracle systems. So we're going to jump right back into the conversation. Uh, I just wanted to give that um, perspective in that Chi Chi Sticks Chim uh, Tong and Kao Chin are all the same thing. They they come with a booklet in which the uh, the fortunes are told in English, and they were always sold in San Francisco when I was a kid. For a long time, you could buy them very cheaply, and sometimes they'd be broken sets, so I'd buy more and more and more of them, try to make full sets up. And I sold them in the Lucky Mojo shop, um, but then they began to import them from China in a bamboo tube, and... Um, they were so cheap on eBay that I didn't, you know, I didn't bother with the antique ones and vintage ones anymore. But they're a big deal in California. Everybody knows about them. Um, the reason I asked about the name, different Chinese people have given me different names, and I presume it has to do with 
I think it's wherever your people are from and what they call, you know, it's more like uh, not everybody calls the lucky Buddha Hotai. I mean, mm-hmm. right. they, they've got different exactly. names. Are you familiar with the moon blocks? Wait, yes, I am. The ones that you throw them and there's like, and they either go up or down. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. Yes, I am. I don't have a set of those and I wish I did. I love those. Um, I, I think that's an older, I think that's probably older than the sticks. I think so too. That it seems to me to be very old. I we have uh, Nagashiva and I have a um, a museum called the Ironwood Institution for the Preservation and Popularization of Indigenous Ethnomagicology, which is Yippee, and nice. it's a um, it, it's a uh, nonprofit, you know, a U.S. nonprofit institution, and it exists to receive our holdings in fortune telling and magical goods and it fills an entire room of our building and um, some of the books we've published have been published by Yippie Trolldom which is on Scandinavian folk magic and that book North Asian Magic I mentioned to you is also published by Yippie and we're looking for more books from different parts of the world uh, we're trying you know get Ukrainian people get Greek people to write brief overviews of the folk magic of their country oh, Greek folk magic is awesome it's, it is interesting, very interesting. So we're trying to get people to write books, but, you know, on the other hand, they write a book and they get Llewellyn to publish it. That's okay, too. You know, I don't. I love to carry those books in my store, but I love um, typesetting and editing books, and I love worldwide culture. And um, so I'm, I'm looking for something on Hong Kong folk magic. Um, I, there's this thing about, um, I don't know what what it's actually called, but some people call it villain beating. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm very with much, you know, with the shoe. Yeah. You go yeah. Under, the, under the overpass, there's a bunch of people that do it. Also, another thing I've been very interested in are worldwide traditions of fortune telling with birds. Oh, yeah, we got, we've got and, lots of people who do that, too. And there are two major types. There are the type that read with small finch-like or or canary birds, and the and then there are the type that read with parrots. Or I've um, only ever seen the finch ones here. Yeah, that's the that is the typical Chinese and Asian, and also um, some of the um, Romani people in England had canaries and um, or finches. And but in India, they use um, a green ring-necked parrot. It's a very docile species of parrot. And the whole thing is done entirely different because the parrot is strong and can pick up a whole envelope with its beak. And the envelope will have in it a one of those gilded prints of a Hindu god and a fortune and everything. Um, and uh, the parrots are, are will also, t- uh, you can hold out your hand and the parrot, you have the coin in the hand and the parrot takes the coin and gives it to the person. And then the car- parrot gets a, the instruction to go pull out the envelope gets the envelope and then it gets the treat. It's very uh, intensive training for the parrots. Whereas the finches are a little bit more like you know they do finches in Italy too, and um, and they would when I was a kid when we were in Italy they had would play a, a music box like a hurdy gurdy and uh, the the finches were there and and the um, oh it was just it was lovely there you know to so I'm I have I collect photos and videos of. Um, fortune-telling birds and um well, i'll send you some i have videos of, of that it was whenever i do quite often when i'm working an event they will have a, a bird fortune teller 
Well, you see, now this is something, this bird fortune telling, I feel like someone should um, do a documentary on it with videos and still photos, you know. I have old postcards from 1905 of women in, in England who were obviously Roma gypsies uh, standing in the street. I have also pictures of um, Italians on the Lower East Side in 1910, 1925, reading fortunes with birds. It's a it's a very ancient method that you know. But you that the in America it's usually chickens, and um, there's a there's a whole thing of of um, Skinnerian training of chickens um, to pick out a fortune. Big old white legerins. <laughs> So, I I just I'm I'm very interested in that's why I say yippee is about all of these different forms of divination, different forms of folklore, and we want to publish about these things, um, partly to memorialize them, partly to enjoy and celebrate them. There's so much, you know, of uh, it's such a rich culture, the culture of divination. There's so much going on there. Out, outside um, of divination, the the most um, widely practiced folk magic in Hong Kong that you will see is the Hungry Ghost Festival. Mm-hmm. So, and and the hell money you were talking about, you can, there's a, the most commonly seen, like almost as common as a 7-Eleven uh, homeware shop is called the Japan Home Center. And there's always an aisle at the Japan Home Center for hell money and red candles and all kinds of things for magical practice. Um, but every year at Hungry Ghost Festival, it's just every corner there's people with burning all kinds of things and setting out food for ancestors. Um, it's it's a great time. It's a, I mean, it's just time, great to be. What time of the year is that? Uh, it's it's September, I think. It might be August, late August. It's it's right before what they call mid-autumn, but it's, you know, it's not what we would call autumn yet here uh, in, in the U.S. Um, it goes by the lunar calendar, so it changes slightly every year. But um, Yeah, of course, of course. Well, in California, because there were so many Cantonese Chinese who came here to work on the railroads, um, all up and down the Gold Rush area. I don't know. Have you ever lived in California or been in California? I've been, but I've not. I've not lived there. Well, there's a highway called Highway 49. They named it after the 49ers. You know, it was a state highway, and this high this highway was an old stage line, the Peerless Stage Line, and they it connects all of these Gold Rush towns, many of which became historic monuments. Were almost ghost towns when I was very young, and then they've been rebuilt and they become state parks and so forth. And um, along Highway 49, there are a number of these Chinese temples. Um, almost all of them are to the military god. There's also an old Chinese pharmacy um, in Fiddletown, um, which was just abandoned and locked up. And by the time it was rediscovered, it was like all full of antiques, so they just kept it. And there's one uh, of these, um, I think it's in Weaverville, that's to a different, it's not to the military god, it's to what's called the Empress of Heaven. And um, all of these were maintained by family groups as these Chinese people moved out, as the gold rush faded and they moved down and sort of settled in San Francisco, they still had the obligation to maintain these temples. And so there usually was one Chinese family kind of left to 
maintain the temple, but then they would come and, and perk it up and, you know, clean it and do their festivals there. Many of them now are state parks, though, and they have these big embrasures um, where they would burn the spirit money. And so for me as a kid, seeing all of that, it was like this this little remnant of Cantonese culture was all around us. And these, they called them Joss houses. Yep. Um, and you don't know this also, you see, but California was settled by a lot of Portuguese fishermen from, um, and they were from the Azores. And so there's this Portuguese uh, and Chinese um, uh, intermixing in the fishing villages of California, like Monterey and, and Mendocino and around like that. So it, it was kind of, it, it's odd that they're called Joss houses, but that's what they're called. And these, um, they go, you, you can find them as far away as uh, in, in Nevada because there was, after the gold rush, there was the silver rush uh, for a while and the Chinese people went there too. And there also were Joss houses in Australia and New Zealand, a few of them. And I, I was just fascinated as a kid by these, uh, these little outposts of this culture not the high culture, but the people's culture. And back in the day, before these were state parks, when they were just vacant land, uh, my mother and I and my stepfather, we'd go out and camp and we'd go gold panning along the rivers because there's, there's still gold in those rivers, just small amounts. And um, my stepfather liked to pan for gold. And we'd go dig, my mother and I would go dig pottery shards and we'd find all of these Chinese ginger jars. Uh, the little, they were little commercial jars that are green and they're like hexagonal. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had a little cap on them that was unglazed and then they would have been tied down with raffia. You find them all over um, and they're so common. You can dig them up any place where Chinese people live. They all had these ginger jars. And I, as a kid, I would like, I wanted every ginger jar in America. I had bunches and bunches and bunches. I still have three or four. Gave them away to my boyfriends as gifts when I got older, you know. Um, but yeah, so I would love to see a book on um, on Cantonese and Hong Kong folk magic. I think it would be a wonderful book. Um, find yourself a co-author who's Cantonese. Yeah, yeah, I, and somebody to to um, yeah, these things better too. Well, I I always say brighten the corner where you are, and um, you know show the beauty of folk magic. Um, it's a fabulous field of endeavor, and there's so much there. As I say, I always, I learned it from my Chinese-American friends as a kid. And, I, you know, I learned this and that and the other. I mean, they would say this is good or this is unlucky or this sure. is lucky, you know. Well, there's but lots what, and lots of stuff that I know. This is what I mean. Like, like when you take me to a temple, I don't know all the stuff in the temple. And I've it's been hard to find people who even who even are local and do, or they might go there and practice it, but they don't quite understand what they're practicing or know the history of it. So that's weird to me. Um, but there's tons and tons of stuff that's regular folk magic for regular life um, that I do know about and, and, and is part of daily life because of my mother-in-law uh, based on uh, beliefs about numbers um, oh yeah, you know, there's yeah, a lot numbers of that. For sure. And then when we got married, there were all kinds of things that that was funny. That my my wife was even like, I didn't know that she believed in much this much of this stuff, you know that uh, that we had to do. And and there's just a lot of traditions about that kind of stuff and food and you know. So there's lots of daily life stuff that still exists that people do and don't even think about that they're doing it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, I exactly. There, there's a a lot of even as a culture becomes overrun by mass media culture, they tend to preserve magic around birth, sex, marriage, death. That because those are the big transition points, and they don't want to go wrong, so they will keep those ideas longer than some other ideas. Also, luck and gambling. A lot of oh the, god, there's um, so much of that. Yeah. Well, China, Chinese people, Native American people, and African people are gambling positive people. And um, so um, people who are from especially um, Protestant Reformation countries are very anti-gambling and think gambling is very bad. And Jews tend to be number counters. And so their gambling is um, more often based around math and um but um, down when I grew up, the Chinese people bet the ponies a lot, and um, they they would they would be out down there playing the ponies at, at the racetrack. And yeah, one of the strongest of, things in Hong Kong is the jockey club. Yeah, yeah, and they and they had systems, and I I have my own system. I did numerology, and and um, I remember talking with a guy. It was this old Chinese guy, and I he he said, "What horse are you going to bet?" And I said. Uh, I like that number four because it had green, had green silk on, and and the horse had looked at me because my deal was if the horse looks at you, bet the horse, you know. And he goes, "Don't bet number four; it's always unlucky." And the horse came in second, not first. And he said, "You see, I told you, unlucky." I said, "Well, not that unlucky." And then I found out that four was considered to be an unlucky, and he would never bet a horse that was four. I made a man a lot of money one night. I was I was performing at a a night. Um, every Wednesday in certain times of the year, the jockey club has a thing called happy Wednesday where at night, uh, they have sort of a beer hall set up outside of where the, the races are going on and, um, and other entertainment stuff. And so there's a period of it usually that's called magic Wednesday and they have different entertainers who do magical things. Um, and so I'm there as the mentalist among the group. And, uh, there was one night where I was doing this and, and this guy just kept coming over to me and go and saying, which number? And I would just literally look at my crystal ball and give him a number. And, mm -hmm. and, and he kept coming back cause he kept winning. And it's funny cause I'd be like, I can't necessarily do this for myself, but I'm glad I, I'm glad I'm doing it for you. Um, mm -hmm. you know, use that money well and, and, you know, be be good with it, please. Because <laughs> it was like five times he came back. He's like, again. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's that, we were talking about unusual experiences. That's been something I've been um, pretty good at. Not my own gambling. I don't like to gamble particularly. It's just not my thing. I don't like that kind of excitement. I have other things that excite me. But I'm good at giving people lucky numbers. I'm really good at giving them lucky numbers. And I've had many, many people call me back and say, that one worked for me. Give me another. And um, I start off usually with the name and birth date and, you know, progress from there. Um, I just do straight up uh, numerology. But, um, yeah, I, I am very much a, one who gives away lucky numbers. And I love to do it. I really get a kick out of it. Um the lottery in California, what is the highest number that you, do you go to 50? 
I have to confess, I do not know don't because know. Okay. I didn't play the lottery. <laughs> I think it may be 50. That sounds about right. Yeah, I don't I, know. I've devised an, a new reading system I've been using lately with, with um, stones that is number-based, but it would be very good for um, throwing lottery numbers. Uh, I'll share oh. it with I'll share it with you sometime. It's too complicated to talk about right now, but uh, yeah. you, you would oh, like would it, I think. To, yeah, I would like to do that. I like to do stone readings. I've done a, um, there's an old system that came out of England that I learned a long time ago with 10 stones. I really like that. I, I love doing, I like crazy kinds of reading. You know, I, I do all things. I, I read bones, I read stones, I read I Ching for people, tarot, playing cards, tea leaves. Um, I'm the I same. I like it all. Me too. And when I discover a new one, I'm like, oh, well, that's new. <laughs> this yeah. is exciting. Yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I get that way, too. I, and, and I like to learn, you know, who devised it, where it came from, how it's done. Um, uh, a friend of mine taught me a method called rose petal reading, and I was just blown away by that one. It was just amazing. Uh, you just read rose petals in a bowl, and it's it works just as good as other things, once you understand the principle of it. I've thought sometimes I ought to teach, you know, systems of divination, because um, I have so many of them memorized, and I use so many of them. Yeah. Um, I do pendulum readings, too, you know, and I know you got that, you wrote that nice book on pendulum reading. Yeah, thanks. I teach it to as many people as I can, because I think it's a great way for people to start learning about the yeah. unconscious side of themselves. us to the end of part two of my conversation with the one and only Catherine Ironwood. I really enjoyed our chat immensely. And, and you know what? There is enough material. I think we chatted for about four hours. There's enough material that I could do another episode and also have extra um, to give to you who pledge on Patreon. That's right, folks. If you like this podcast, go to stuartpalm.com or go to mysteriousworldpodcast.com and uh, you'll find there in the heading of the podcast section um, right where the logo for Mysterious World uh, is a button to Patreon where you can pledge and support this podcast. Please do, because um, I'm committed to doing this way more often, as you guys have seen. Uh, I've been doing this every week lately. I don't know that we'll end up on every week after the um, COVID-19 period, but but every two weeks I'm committed to at least. And um, to keep that up, I do need uh, some support. Another way you could support, as Catherine and I were just talking, you could find and purchase my book, Access Your Psychic Self, Beginner Pendulum Magic. 
that is available at lulu.com. If you go to Lulu and search Stuart Palm or Beginner Pendulum Magic Stuart Palm, you'll find it. Or you can find it easily by just going to stuartpalm.com, S-T-U-A-R-T-P-A-L-M.com, and uh, clicking on the shop button there. And it'll, you'll have a link to the PDF version or to the print version of that book. You'll also have a, uh, a link there to all of the Mysterious World podcast content by hitting the podcast button. You can also get into all of the amazing things from Catherine Ironwood. Um, go to Lucky Mojo Curio Company, luckymojocuriocompany.com. And uh, I think it's luckymojocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuriocuri
I'm one of the founding members of AIR, Association of Independent Readers and Root Workers, which is at readersandrootworkers.com. And this is a directory of about 30, 35 practitioners who will do spells for you and read for you. We're all teachers, authors, diviners. We all have different specialties. And there's about 650 web pages there for free about teaching you about all the different forms of divination and magic and also famous people in the field. And then I'm also a member of Hoodoo Psychics, which is run by my friend Deacon Millet, which is an online uh, telephone psychic service at um, one 888 hoodoo or hoodoo And I'm on there every Saturday. That's my office hours. But I also am on at other times in the evening doing readings. And um, that's a di- entirely different group than AIR. And there's some overlap, of course. We're all friends. So that's about it for who I am and what I do. I used to lead a festival, but I haven't done that this year, and I've I've retired from leading the festival. For 12 years, I led something called the Hoodoo Heritage Festival, and um, but out of it, we brought some good books, workshop books called the Black Folder and the Red Folder, so that festivals, although they're gone, are still memorialized in these books. Publishing at, at Lucky Mojo Publishing, which would be luckymojo.com, forward slash publishing there's all our books are there and um that's just that's a the lot tip, <laughs> the tip of the iceberg well i'm 72 years old and i've been doing this for years so after a while you know like a like a a clam or a, you know that has a little grain of sand and it begins to build a pearl and eventually it has a very large pearl <laughs> just takes time to build that little pearl and that's what I've been doing all these years. Is well, um, Thank you for sharing some of that time with us. Yeah. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for allowing me to give a little plug to what I do. Of course.
Words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither while they pass, they slip away across the universe. Pools of sorrow, waves of joy are drifting through my open mind, possessing and caressing me. Jai Guru Deva. Nothing's gonna change my world. 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 Images of broken light which dance before me like a million eyes. They call me on and on and on across the universe. Thoughts meander like a restless wind inside a letterbox. They tumble blindly as they make their way across the universe. Jai Guru Deva Nothing's gonna change my world. 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 Sounds of laughter, shades of life are ringing through my open ears. Inciting and inviting me. Limitless, undying love, which shines around me like a million suns. It calls me on and on and on across the universe. Jai Guru Deva. Nothing's gonna change my world. 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 Jai Guru Deva Jai Guru Deva Jai Guru Deva Jai Guru Deva Deva.
And so that's my humble attempt at Across the Universe by John Lennon, a song I greatly enjoy. Actually, I also recommend listening to Fiona Apple's version of it. Hers is great as well. Guru Dev is the teacher of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who teaches or taught, or I guess teaches is still right, um, Transcendental Meditation all over the world. Um, I took a Transcendental Meditation course a while back. I used it daily for a long time. I now use something slightly different, but I highly recommend taking on a process of meditation to anybody. It helps decrease anxiety and free you from yourself, mostly. So I wish you all well. Thank you for listening. Blessed be.